Hello, my name is Jeff Sankoff, the TriDoc. I'm an emergency physician, a triathlon coach, a multiple Ironman finisher, and this is the TriDoc Podcast, coming to you, as always, from beautiful, sunny Denver, Colorado. It's a pretty balmy day here in Colorado in mid-November. The temperatures here actually in the last couple of weeks have hovered in the very pleasant range of the 60s and 70s, and that even goes back through a lot of October. While mild weather isn't totally unheard of here in November, it does feel a bit unusual to have it be this warm for this long without even a threat of a snowflake. Now, don't get me wrong, it's not like I'm eager for winter or anything, but in a year that has been subsumed with all kinds of climate disasters, I can't help but wonder if this is yet one more example of how things have gone off the rails with respect to our weather and greater climate in general. Mark Allen just recently posted a video to his YouTube channel where he similarly lamented how climate change appears to be impacting even triathlon. Just this year, we saw record-breaking heat in Kirtland and in Oregon leading up to their inaugural 70.3 race. Ironman California was forced to cancel because of all things horrendous thunderstorms and flooding, and this was after a woeful summer of drought and fires. And even Ironman Florida was plagued by weather issues, leading to a very difficult swim and hundreds of competitors missing the time cut for the first leg of the race. In his video, Allen said, quote, Weather is affecting races. Weather is affecting outdoor events in ways that seem to be more seems to be more on a consistent basis. And it's not just this year or this weekend. It's really been going on for a while. Weather is affecting our sport. Weather is affecting all outdoor activity. It's not as predictable as maybe it was 20 or 30 years ago. It's a reality that we're having to deal with, end quote. He then went on to say, quote, climate change? Probably. Is there anything we can do about it? I hope so. Is it the most important aspect of saving the planet's climate? No, racing is not the most important thing, but it's a window into showing us how things are changing, end quote. I think that it's good to see respected people in our sport, like Mark Allen, speaking out on this subject. It's something that we're all going to be facing in the coming years. And while nothing really great came out of the most recent climate change conference in Glasgow, there is clearly a growing groundswell of support in populations around the world to do something drastic before it's too late, if it isn't already. While Mark Allen's voice isn't likely to cause the kind of change that's really needed, I for one am happy to hear him say what he's saying, and make the case that as triathletes, we should be invested in seeing the kinds of change that is necessary to move the needle on this topic, and save not just our sport of triathlon, but the worldwide locations where our races take place, and the people who live there that will be so seriously impacted as well. On the show today, I've been asked a lot about iron recently. I'm not sure why this medal has engendered as many questions to me as it has in short order, but I'm kind of glad that whatever it was that prompted these questions did the job, because it's given me a chance to dive into the literature and see if I can come up with some answers. Specifically, how common is iron deficiency in athletes? Does iron deficiency impact performance? Do I need to get tested for deficiency? And who needs to take iron supplements? Well, it turns out these questions aren't the easiest to answer, but I do my best to give some advice, and that's coming right up. Later, I'm joined by former Olympic cross-country skier Chris Freeman. Chris learned during his years as a competitive skier that he had type 1 diabetes, and he's been on the forefront of cutting-edge technologies and medicines to manage his disease and still have some pretty remarkable performances. 
Well, since retiring from skiing, Chris has taken up triathlon, and it likely won't come as much of a surprise to learn that he has had some pretty immediate and impressive success. Chris talks to me about his time in triathlon, his use of continuous glucose monitoring to help manage his glucose levels during training and racing, and gives his opinion on whether or not CGM is really of any use for non-diabetics. That conversation will be coming a little later on. Before all of that, though, I want to acknowledge that for my listeners in the United States, next week is Thanksgiving. And personally, I have a lot to be thankful for, but I want to take a moment to express my deepest gratitude to all of you, my listeners. When I started this podcast almost three years ago, I did so not knowing what to expect in terms of what kind of reception it would get and whether or not there'd even be an audience for this kind of program. Well, 80 shows later, I am incredibly gratified to see listeners downloading the program all over the world. And I want you all to know that while I may not know your names, I am so very grateful for your continued listening, for any ratings or reviews that you might have given, and for any friends that you might have introduced the program to. I'm hopeful that the podcast will keep growing and that I can answer the kinds of questions that I have been for many more people in the future. One listener's name that I do know is Steph Van Bepper. And the reason I know her name is because she recently became a Patreon supporter of this show. And that is something to be really thankful for. For about the price of cop- for about the price of a cup of coffee per month, you could join Steph too and get access to all kinds of interesting interviews available only to my supporters. Right now I have bonus content in the form of interviews with Simon Marshall, Mark Allen, Dan Emfield, and Alex Larson, along with a video talk by me on the science of tapering, and this is among much, much more. So visit my Patreon site today and become a supporter so that you can get access to all of these things right now. And that URL is patreon.com forward slash Podcast. And as always, thanks in advance just for considering. You are an Ironman. Those are the words that pretty much everyone in triathlon, be they a beginner or a grizzled veteran like myself, is pretty much always thinking about hearing. Eventually, though it may not be the goal when someone first starts in the sport, the full-distance Ironman begins to exert a pull that is both undeniable and often irresistible. Interestingly, though, while so many of us are super passionate and, okay, maybe a little bit obsessed about becoming an Ironman, the fact that we are all working to become one is a well-known risk for actually becoming somewhat deficient in the very element within the name, iron. So you could almost say that in becoming an Ironman, we may do so at the expense of our own body's iron, becoming less of an Ironman. Now, iron is a vitally important element in our bodies, and yet we, surprisingly, have no real good way of storing it. The reason that iron is so important is that it is the main way that our bodies transport oxygen within the blood to the tissues that need it and within the cells in order to metabolize fuels. Within the hemoglobin molecule inside each one of our red blood cells is a single atom of iron, and it is this atom that will associate with an atom of oxygen in the lungs in order to carry it along to the tissues. It's also that atom of iron that confers the red color to blood itself. Now, within our cells, iron can be found in the enzymes within the mitochondria, where there it also handles oxygen so that fuel can be burned to produce energy and 
also can be found within heme-like molecules. So molecules like hemoglobin, but actually within the muscle cells called myoglobin, where that myoglobin-containing iron also binds oxygen so that it can be held for producing energy in order to fuel and uh, support the contraction of muscle cells. Now, I have recently received quite a few questions about iron deficiency in athletes, so I decided to take this subject on, but I've got to tell you, it's kind of complicated, and there's no easy or particularly straightforward answers to a lot of the questions that I received, but I'm going to do my best to try and summarize what I've been able to find and give you at least some guidance that hopefully will illuminate this whole issue just a little bit better. So what I'm going to do is break this topic into sections because I think that's going to make it easiest to follow and understand. I'm going to begin first with a high-level overview of iron metabolism. How do we obtain it from the diet? How is it absorbed? What happens to it once it's in the body? And importantly, how is it lost? I'm then going to do a brief overview of laboratory testing for iron levels. These are the tests that are not terribly straightforward, but help us understand whether or not there is a true iron deficiency. So we're going to try and sort some of those out. Next, I'm going to get into the evidence on how often athletes are actually iron deficient and whether or not that is really important. And most importantly, why is that deficiency believed to exist in athletes themselves? And finally, I'll talk about what is known about the benefits, or lack thereof, of supplementing with iron. Does it really help, and is it something that people should consider? Okay, so let's begin with kind of a 30,000-foot overview of iron metabolism. Now, as I mentioned earlier, iron is found throughout our bodies, but principally within our red blood cells, and then to a lesser extent in muscle cells, but also in the bone marrow. Now, it's found in the bone marrow where it's bound to a protein, and that complex is called ferritin. And there, it awaits incorporation into new hemoglobin molecules that are put into the newly formed red blood cells that are constantly being made within the bone marrow itself. Now, the total amount of iron in an adult is somewhere around 600 to 1,000 milligrams for male and 200 to 300 milligrams for females, and that's really a tiny amount. The difference between males and females, the reason that there's so much more iron in males than females, is generally attributable to muscle mass, where a lot of iron is stored as myoglobin, and the fact that women experience ongoing losses of iron in the form of their uh, usual menstrual cycles. Now, iron is lost by other means, too, not just in menstrual cycles. And in normal adults, around one milligram a day is lost, generally in the form of old blood cells being shed, along with some iron itself into the, uh, the lumen of the gut, where it then passes out when you go to the bathroom. Now, iron is obtained, on the other hand, in the diet, and it comes in one of two forms as organic iron, which is basically iron that's in the heme molecule that is consumed within animal flesh, or in an inorganic form, where it's found in varying quantities in all kinds of different cereals and vegetables. Now, organic iron is readily absorbed, and it gets rapidly incorporated into ferritin, where it then awaits incorporation, as I said earlier, into newly forming red blood cells. While inorganic iron, on the other chance, on the, other, on the other hand, has much lower bioavailability. That is to say that while organic iron is pretty much all taken up, 
inorganic iron isn't. And there are various reasons for that. Not only this, but inorganic iron sitting in your stomach can also be interfered with by all manner of different kinds of chemicals in the foods that we eat, so that even though the iron is there, these other inhibitors can prevent that iron from being taken up. So for example, spinach is an example of a vegetable that is pretty rich in iron, but spinach also contains a kind of chemical called polyphenols, and those polyphenols actually inhibit iron absorption. So eating spinach, it's a great source of iron, but you can't absorb a lot of it because of these polyphenols, and that kind of makes spinach being high in iron a little bit of a moot point. Still, the good news is the amount of iron needed in a daily average diet in order to maintain normal iron balance, assuming someone isn't losing an exorbitant amount of iron, is actually quite small, only about 20 milligrams per day. And this number is, of course, going to be susceptible to other factors, because as I mentioned, that 20 milligrams per day is assuming you aren't losing a lot of iron. However, there are a lot of processes, a lot of different kinds of people will have higher needs. For example, there are all kinds of disease states where there is an increased loss in iron. And in those situations, the amount to keep up with losses can rise very, very quickly. Because as I said right at the top, there's no way to store iron in the body to serve as a buffer if those losses outpace intake. Now on the flip side of this, the body doesn't have a great mechanism for eliminating iron either. So we can't store it, and we also don't have a great way of getting rid of it. So if we have too much iron that's taken in, it can actually become poisonous. So those, uh, the iron balance has to be kept in a really, really uh, very narrow range. And there's one other really important thing that needs to be understood about iron absorption and iron metabolism. And that is the effect of a fairly recently discovered protein called hepcidin that is made in the liver. Now, when present, hepcidin inhibits the uptake of iron. And when hepcidin is absent, iron uptake in the gut is increased. And there are several things that influence the amount of hepcidin that's being secreted into the blood. So for example, there are disease states that are very inflammatory in nature. And when there's inflammation, hepcidin levels will rise. As a result of that, with higher levels of hepcidin, you get lower amounts of iron uptake, and then you end up with a chronic low iron level that is often seen in chronic inflammatory states. On the other hand, anemia, where you have a low blood count and a need to have more iron available to make more red blood cells, that actually decreases the amount of hepcidin. And because hepcidin and iron uptake are inversely related, when hepcidin levels fall, iron uptake increases. So you can understand how hepcidin is pretty tightly controlled and has a lot of fairly predictable responses to different kinds of things that are going on within the body at the time in order to make sure that iron levels are kept in a range that it should be. Okay, so when a patient goes to their doctor and they want to know what's going on with their iron levels, they have iron studies done. And these are tests that will check their iron levels and will give a sense to the physician and hopefully the patient as to how much iron is in the body and whether or not there is a deficiency or a normal amount of iron. 
Now, it is way beyond the scope of this segment to get into a detailed discussion of all of the tests that can be done and how they are interpreted. Suffice it to say, there are several, and understanding exactly how to interpret the values of each of these tests becomes a little bit dizzying. I will confess that even as an emergency physician who sees these things all the time, when the iron studies pop up, I often need to consult a reference to make sure I'm interpreting them correctly. That's how confusing it can sometimes be. Now, for the purpose of this discussion, the usual iron studies performed in order to determine the levels of iron in an individual include a hemoglobin level within the red blood cells, a ferritin level, and total iron binding capacity, or TIBC. Now, if the hemoglobin is normal, but the ferritin or TIBC are abnormal, this tends to indicate a scenario where there's iron deficiency, but without anemia. Whereas if the hemoglobin is low and the TIBC and the ferritin are also abnormal, this will suggest not only iron deficiency, but iron deficiency in the presence of an iron deficiency anemia. And it's really that iron deficiency anemia that we care about the most because the distinction between these two states is is really important. In the first one, the iron levels are depressed low enough and for long enough to result in us being able to see that there is an iron deficiency. Whereas in the second one, in the other one, the depressed levels of iron actually result in less red blood cells being formed, less amounts of hemoglobin being inserted into those new red blood cells. And so you end up with smaller red blood cells that aren't as dense with hemoglobin as they should be. And this is the definition of having an iron deficiency anemia. So it's possible to have iron deficiency without anemia or iron deficiency with anemia. Now, there's no doubt that anybody who has iron deficiency anemia well, they have something that really needs to be addressed because that's a medical issue. And we know for sure that iron deficiency anemia definitively adversely impacts athletic performance simply because you have less hemoglobin transporting less oxygen to your working muscles. And it's very clear you aren't going to be able to perform as well. Now, what isn't so clear is if those people who have iron deficiency in the absence of anemia also need to be treated with iron and whether or not that iron deficiency without anemia actually has an impact on performance. So let's take a look at the evidence. And I was able to find quite a few studies on this, and they're all pretty interesting. Now, as I mentioned, iron deficiency, as defined as abnormal iron studies on lab analysis, turns out to be quite a common finding amongst athletes, and especially in triathletes. One review paper that I saw suggested that 1 in 10 males and as many as 1 in 3 females have iron deficiency without anemia. An additional study on a fairly small number of elite triathletes reported that as many as 6 in 10 of the men were iron deficient, and 1 in 2 of the women were. Now, this is the only study that I could find that reported a higher prevalence of iron deficiency in men than in women. Most of the time, women are noted to have higher rates of iron deficiency, but this one was particularly interesting because it suggested men did. Now, this study also, the one on triathletes, reported as many as one in four of the men actually had not just iron deficiency, but also iron deficiency anemia. But 
this was a very high result, and I was not able to find any other evidence in any other paper that came anywhere close to this. So most of the time, it's iron deficiency alone being seen in athletes without iron deficiency anemia. Still, it is clear that in all of the papers that I saw, iron deficiency without anemia amongst athletes is really common. And the reasons for this aren't completely well understood, although there are several theories. First off, we have to return to that hormone hepcidin that I mentioned a little bit earlier, which modulates iron uptake from the digestive tract. It turns out hepcidin levels rise when uh, a person is exercising. And so you can imagine a triathlete, for example, who exercises a fair amount during the week is going to be continually having high levels of hepcidin, decreasing their ability uh, to absorb iron. And therefore, they may run into problems with iron deficiency. There's also an association between exercising a lot and using anti-inflammatory medications, the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs like uh, Aleve or ibuprofen, those kinds of things. Now, often those medications cause minor amounts of gastrointestinal blood loss. And in those people who use regular NSAIDs, in other words, they're using them pretty much daily, blood loss is going to be even more significant. And iron loss in this way is thought to be pretty pronounced in heart-training athletes. And so if a heart-training athlete is using a lot of NSAIDs, they can lose quite a bit of iron. Now, renal losses of blood also happen with long, hard efforts in athletes. It's not uncommon for uh, microscopic uh, hematuria or microscopic blood loss within the urine to be uh, identified in people who run a marathon, for example. But the amount of blood there tends to be fairly small, and so it's not a huge contributor to iron deficiency. Finally, there has been much debate about the possibility that blood cells are destroyed in the feet with prolonged running. I found this theory to be the most interesting. And this is basically the simple result of continuous impact of the foot causing pressure and resulting, dis- and, and resulting in the destruction of red blood cells. Now, this is pretty much a theory at this point. Nobody's actually been able to prove this, but it remains a reasonably popular theory and suggests that athletes who do a lot of running, especially for long distances, are destroying their red blood cells and resulting in a loss in iron over time and contributing to iron deficiency. So again, not proven, but pretty interesting. Now, one route for iron loss that has been pretty well disproven is through sweating. Now, even in people who sweat a lot, it is true that there are tiny amounts of iron in our sweat. The amounts of iron in the sweat is just too small to make the losses in this manner particularly important. So while, yes, we do lose a tiny fraction amount of iron, a fractional amount of iron in our sweat, even in those who sweat a lot, you're just not losing that much iron. So sweating is clearly not a contributor to iron losses. Okay, so we've determined that a lot of athletes are likely iron deficient, and we've given some potential theories as to why this might be. But now we need to understand whether or not this actually matters. Well, the evidence on this question is kind of difficult to parse, but most authors have reported that in the absence of iron deficiency anemia, iron deficiency alone has minimal to no impact on endurance sport performance. And likely this is due to the fact that the iron that is measured is free. It's made up of ferritin, it's made up of a very small amount of actual free iron, and that iron is not involved in oxygen transport, nor is it involved in metabolism in the cells. Uh, 
So while this important measure of iron may indicate a true iron deficiency, if there's no associated anemia, it suggests that levels of iron alone in the important cells are still normal and therefore performance is not being impacted. So the amount of iron in ferritin, the amount of iron uh, with uh, total iron binding capacity, as long as the hemoglobin is okay, those other factors which may indicate an iron deficiency, it just might not, it just doesn't seem to matter for performance, at least athletic performance. Now, once iron deficiency manifests as anemia, that's a completely different ballgame, as I mentioned earlier. The second we start to see an iron deficiency anemia from a prolonged period of iron deficiency, then athletes are obviously going to expect to see some decrements in performance, and that needs to be treated. Now, the, this notion that iron deficiency without anemia is relatively benign tends to be borne out by studies that have looked at iron supplementation in athletes with deficiency, but no anemia. In all of these studies, it's been shown pretty much repeatedly that giving supplements in this case doesn't really improve performance, which seems to suggest that iron deficiency alone is not something that actually adversely impacts performance at all. So it's really not the iron deficiency that matters nearly as much as whether or not there's an iron deficiency anemia, and that's super important. Okay, so what do we do with all of this information? Since iron deficiency is clearly very common in athletes, but doesn't seem to be terribly important unless it's associated with anemia in order to affect performance, who then should think about getting their iron levels tested, and does it make sense to supplement with iron even without knowing those blood test results? Now, these are very reasonable questions, so let's try to answer them. First and foremost, who should be getting iron studies is kind of hard to define. Some authors have argued that all athletes should have their iron levels done routinely, while others say only those with symptoms or those who are at risk for anemia really need to do this. I think that I personally would look at this and take a balanced, maybe nuanced approach. If you're an athlete, male or female, who is not having any symptoms of anemia, and those are specifically are fatigue and exercise intolerance, and at its most severe, even skin pallor, so paleness of the skin, then testing for iron levels is probably not that helpful, since in the absence of anemia, interpreting those results and developing a treatment plan is really less than clear. Now, if you're someone who's at high risk of iron deficiency and anemia, even if you are asymptomatic, then in that case, it probably makes sense to get iron levels checked periodically. And by people at risk, I'm referring mostly to women who have heavy menstrual periods and then vegetarians from both sexes. And I'll get to that in a little while as to why vegetarians should consider themselves at risk. Now, more severe cases of iron deficiency, even in the absence of anemia, should likely be treated with supplementation. And we're going to get to supplementation now because that's the second part of the question, which is also hard to answer in a general manner. Because iron supplementation is not completely benign and not always helpful. Because it's so poorly bioavailable, supplements tend to have three times as much iron as is eventually absorbed within the gut and needs to be taken pretty frequently, as many as three times a day. Beyond the inconvenience of having to take so much iron, there's also the fact that supplements are pretty notorious for causing side effects like constipation and stomach upset, making them a little bit difficult to tolerate. Probably the best advice is for everyone to do their best to ensure that their diet is as high in natural sources of iron as possible. If you eat meat, then you're already likely getting enough bioavailable iron to avoid being anemic. 
But vegetarians, as I mentioned earlier, need to be extra diligent because while iron is in a lot of vegetarian foods, it's often inhibited from being absorbed by some of the other things in those foods. Soy and bran are two examples of things commonly found in vegetarian diets that inhibit iron uptake. So even though vegetarian foods are often pretty high in iron, that iron is inorganic, tends to be inhibited from being taken up, and so it's not all that uncommon for vegetarians of both sexes to end up being pretty significantly iron deficient. Now, the best thing that everyone can do to ensure good dietary iron uptake is to combine it with foods like vitamin C that promotes absorption and to ensure that you're getting good amounts of iron-fortified foods like cereals. If you're considering supplements, make sure you know how much iron is in that pill and how much is expected to be absorbed. In the absence of anemia, no more than 50 milligrams of bioavailable iron is really needed per day in order to address any specific iron deficiency unless it's quite severe. At the end of the day, as I mentioned earlier, this is not a really straightforward subject, but hopefully all of this information will have given you some basis of understanding for how to consider iron deficiency, the iron sources in your diet, and whether or not to get tested or use supplements. And now we can all hope to hear those words that define us not only as a triathlete, but hopefully as a non-iron deficient individual. Do you have a question for me to consider answering on the program? Well, send it to me at tri underscore doc at icloud.com. This episode of the TriDoc Podcast is brought to you by Life Sport Coaching. Led by Ironman Master Coach Lance Watson, Life Sport Coaching has coaches all over the world, including the TriDoc. Our coaches bring diverse backgrounds and a wealth of experience to help you reach your triathlon and multi sport goals. If you are ready to take your racing to the next level, consider Life Sport Coaching, where you can meet other athletes in group workouts and camps, and consult with our team nutritionist. Learn more at lifesportcoaching.com. My guest today on the podcast is Chris Freeman. Chris is a four-time cross-country ski Olympian, uh, starting in 2002 and going through 2014. He's also been a 17-time U.S. cross-country ski national champion, but he's also a 2021 Ironman World Championship qualifier. He uh, won his age group at Ironman Lake Placid just this past July. And he's also a Novo Nordisk type 1 diabetes ambassador. And he came to my attention by uh, another listener who had heard me discuss things like continuous glucose monitoring on the podcast and graciously put me in touch with Chris, who thought that Chris would have some really good insights on that subject. So uh, when I spoke to Chris before recording this uh, episode, uh, we had a really good conversation about his uh, past in the sport, as well as uh, his experience as a diabetic. And so I really Really wanted to get him on the podcast so that you, my listeners, could hear some of his insights. So, Chris, thank you so much for agreeing to be here on the TriDog Podcast. Well, thank you. I'm glad to be here. And so, I want to begin first with uh, your history as uh, uh, in a different kind of endurance sport, that being in cross country skiing. Uh, tell us about uh, how you got your start in that sport and about your successes. Well, I got my start really early. Um, I started cross-country skiing as soon as I could walk. My parents propped me up on skis. I did my first ski race when I was five years old. 
Um, and I also started ski jumping when I was six years old. So I was actually a Nordic combined athlete um, through the age of 16. Um, and I was really fortunate. I had a fantastic uh, club coach in my hometown of Andover, New Hampshire. Um, and about half of about half of the town is made up of a prep school called Proctor. They had their own ski jumps, their own cross-country ski trails, their own downhill facilities, and they were open to town kids. And um, myself and two others, Jed Hinckley and Carl Van Loan, were in town there. And uh, from right around from the ages of seven, eight, we were out competing against each other every day after school and on the weekends and organized competitions. And we just got better and better. And by the time we were uh, 15, we we went and qualified and went and competed at the uh, uh, the junior national championships and we were all on the podium. So uh, suddenly we realized that, you know, being third in your town wasn't so bad because you might be third in the country. Um, from there, I decided that uh, Olympic caliber ski jumping wasn't for me. I actually had um, some self-preservation instincts <laughs> that I noticed that my peers did not have. Um, and I also really tended towards the endurance side of things. Um, I was probably the only kid up on the ski jumping hill looking forward to cross-country ski training in the afternoon. Um, so I made the switch to what was called special cross-country in ski jumping terms uh, when I was 16. And I uh, didn't waste any time there. I, went, I won the overall at Junior Nationals that year. Um, I represented the U.S. three years in a row at the World Junior Championships. Best finish was eighth place. Uh, that earned me a uh, full scholarship to the University of Vermont uh, Athletic Scholarship, uh, where I raced for one year um, before being um, offered a spot on the U.S. ski team trained full-time for the 2002 Olympics. So after that first year, I went and uh, moved to Park City, Utah. And uh, that was actually the year that I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. So. so I want to back up just a little bit. I have a bunch of questions I want to ask about going forward. At, but I first want to go back because as a, an enthusiast of all things Olympics, uh, I was aware of the Nordic combined, uh, but I don't know a whole lot about how it uh, works as a competition. So I think you jump first, correct? Yeah. So you, you jump first and in ski jumping, there are a certain amount of points allocated for each meter that you fly in the air. And there are also um, judges that judge your takeoff, um, your flight position, and um, how well you land. Um, and the, it seems strange to have a jumping, to have judges in a competition that's primarily about distance. But what that does is it kind of works as an equalizer. Um, if there's different wind conditions, it can greatly affect how far you fly. And so having the style competition in there also. Okay. And then, and then the distance and the points that you get based on the jump, then, then point becomes worth a certain amount of seconds. And that, that determines where you start on the cross country ski yeah. race. So if you win the jump, you will start so many seconds in front of the guy who was second in the jump. Got it. And, um, at this point, at this point, um, Nordic combined is pretty simple. Um, it's one jump and then a 10 kilometer ski. And you're jumping from the small hill? Um, they use both hills now. Oh, wow. Okay. 
<laughs> the small hill, he says, as somebody who would never in a million years go up that thing. <laughs> well, I I jumped the small hill many, many times in Lake Placid. And had I not quit the sport at 16, I most likely would have jumped the big hill that season. Wow. Uh, okay. So you get to uh, Salt Lake in 2002. And uh, how is your diagnosis come to? Well, the diagnosis was really, was a very uh, difficult thing to get. Um, I was diagnosed in a routine blood test, a fasting glucose test. I had not progressed far enough in the disease that I actually was getting uh, any severe symptoms. So when I was diagnosed two years before the Olympics, um, I was basically thought I was healthy and I went and uh, the blood test said otherwise. I went to an endocrinologist and here I was with this chronic disease. Um, I was told no one had ever competed at the Olympic level in endurance sport before, um, that it couldn't be done and that I was, should probably give up. Um, clearly I didn't do that. Um, did a lot of my own um, research. I talked to, to doctors in and out of the field and what really made me think I could keep going and, and, and actually do what hadn't been done before was the pr progress in uh, diabetes treatment. Um, rapid acting insulins had only been around for four or five years at that point. Um, glucose monitors were getting faster and more accurate. So I could see why, and especially looking at what we have now, like 20 years after my diagnosis, God, we're light years ahead of where we were 20 years ago. I don't know how I was doing what I was doing before. When you back up 20 years before that, it's like the dark ages. Um, so it wasn't that doctors were being overly negative with me. It was that it hadn't been done before. No one really knew it was possible yet. So let's talk about uh, rapid acting insulins. Uh, for most of my listeners, I assume they won't know what you're talking about. So uh, tell us about the different kinds of insulins and why rapid acting insulin was so important for you as a, an athlete. Well, insulin is the hormone that takes uh, blood sugar out of your blood and gets it into your body for either to store as glycogen or to use as energy right away. Um, a person with type 1 diabetes, their body, for whatever reason, kills all the insulin-making cells in their body, which are called uh, islet cells. So I have to inject synthetic insulin into my body. And um, all synthetic insulin if you were to mainline it, like directly into a vein would act the same, but the insulins are engineered to break down differently in the subcutaneous fat in your body. So there are insulins that are designed to go to break down very slowly over the course of 24 hours, which is just to control your blood sugar throughout the day. And then there are insulins designed to break down as fast as doctors have figured out how to do it or researchers have figured out how to do it. Um, the, the insulin I'm using now, for instance, starts working two minutes after I put it in and um, is reaching peak activity at about 20 minutes. Um, you compare that to that, like when I was referring to the dark ages in the late 70s and 80s, you would inject and you wouldn't really get much of anything for two hours. Um, right. So. Right. And that's really important to note because we know that the problem with diabetes and there are many, many long-term health consequences of diabetes, they're all related to uncontrolled high levels of glucose. And so diabetics in the past would get a level on their blood sugar, which 
you and I have talked about that wasn't even, even that wasn't possible for a long time, but let's say they would, let's say they would get a rapid uh, glucose level. They would take insulin, but the insulin wouldn't actually act for two hours, at which point their glucose level would be radically different, potentially much higher. So they were always chasing after a number that had changed by the time the insulin started to act. And if you can also imagine being hungry and injecting yourself and being sweet, two hours to go and I can eat something. Right. Um, Oh, um, even for me now with the medicines that I have and the options I have, spontaneity is still not a luxury that I have. And I can only imagine how uh, much more rigid and scheduled things used to be. Yeah. So I want to get back and talk to uh, talk about uh, the Olympics for just a second, but I definitely, we, we will come back and talk about how you manage your glucose, especially during competition uh, in a short while. Uh, you went on to compete in 2002 and, and you had told me prior to this, that that was a real troublesome year for you in the Olympics. Because actually, you were having trouble managing. Was that the year that you were having trouble? No, managing? actually the, the year that I had trouble was 2010. Ah, okay. Sorry. I missed 2002 was actually a bit of a storybook uh, Olympics for me. I'd had very little international competition, uh, a very little international competition experience at that point. Um, it's definitely kind of a rookie. And, you know, I came in and I had, um, I was our top skier in uh, one race, the, the pursuit race. And I was also honored to be on our four man, uh, four by 10 kilometer relay team. I skied the second leg. And we had a historic finish. We were we were fifth place, um, which is to the, to this day still the best the U.S. men have ever done at, at the Olympics. We're still working on getting that medal. Mm-hmm. Um, so actually, Salt Lake City was great. I had a fantastic time, and um, it's the only time I've ever raced in the United States and in front of you know tens of thousands of people. <laughs> right. And then 2006 is Turin, and uh, that was a good a good one as well for you. Um, you know, Torino was a little bit, um, a little bit disappointing for me. I, I was fighting a cold and I just never came into my own at that, at that Olympics. You know how it, you know how it is. Sometimes your health just doesn't yeah. go up. Yeah. So what happened into What happened in 2010? Well, 2010 was really, um, the year, you know, physiologically training base, everything that I should have come together and, um, had my best Olympics. Um, earlier that season, I did have probably the best race of my career in Kusumo. I was uh, fourth place in a World Cup, just uh, you know, ten seconds from the win. I got beat by a couple of doping Russians, so I was—I I say I was second in that race, but I was fourth. Um, my fitness was there, um, but when I got to the games. Um, I, I was having a lot of trouble controlling my blood sugar with it, just anxiety, nerves. I wasn't, I wasn't prepared for the media spotlight in the way that it was shined on me. You know, I was on the Today Show, I was on the cover of Outside Magazine. I felt so much pressure to perform and that pressure made more adrenaline, more cortisol in my body. Cortisol makes you less sensitive to insulin and adrenaline basically drum dumps glycogen into your system. So my blood sugar was erratic. It was going low, it's going high. And uh, when I got to my focal race, um, those nerves showed up when um, I collapsed about halfway through the race. Um, I had a a hypoglycemic episode. It's the only, I think 
man, that's not the only, but of, you know, hundreds of professional races with diabetes. I think I've only stopped twice Hmm. or paused twice. I should say I did get up and finish that race, uh, which I believe I also told you was monumentally stupid because I, I pretty much sacrificed the rest of my Olympics in that one race by racing and completing low. I, um, my body was dumping so much adrenaline into my body, trying to keep it up, my blood sugars up that I gave myself adrenal fatigue in about an hour. Um, and it took actually months to recover from it. All right. Well, you did come back in 2014 where you had a, a better time, correct? Um, I actually had my best quality season the very next year in 2011. I had a great world cup that year. Um, I finished to, you know, the prestigious red group. That's like a special, you get your name on your bib. You're special. And, um, you know, I was, I had 15 races, uh, in the top 20, I was skiing just very, very well. I won, I won some huge fist races. And after 2011, um, I was, what was I? I was, I started to plateau and go down the other side. So by the time I got to 2014, I, I kind of missed my, my window for peak performance. So, all right. Well, in then let's pardon me, in skiing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, let's talk about your after skiing career because it's been already quite remarkable. So, what what led you to triathlon? Well, I continued to ski race through 2018, and I knew I wanted to keep competing. And I and I've always, you know, I've done I had done some triathlons just for fun. I would uh, in the summertime without any prep at all. And of course I would completely get my ass kicked in the water. I'd ride pretty well and running was actually my strongest event. Um, and we have a, a local, uh, bike racing, just, you know, club bike racing thing that happens every Tuesday night in town. And I, I was meeting some people and I met some triathletes there. And I mentioned that I wanted to do this race called the, the CETA summit because it just looked tough. And the CETA summit is a, it actually starts on the main coast with a one and a half mile swim in the ocean. And then you ride your bike a hundred miles or so to, the, to Mount Washington and you run to the top of Mount Washington. So it's kind of an adventure race. And I, and I said, and I met this guy, um, Mark, and I said, yeah, I want to do this, but I really don't know how to swim. And he says, well, my wife is a swim coach. <laughs> and, um, I met up with her and, uh, we clicked really well. Um, she, her name's Susan Balmer. Um, and she, we just spoke the same language with technique and, um, I started making a rapid improvement. The only, um, the only swimming I'd ever done at up to that point was like, you know, town swim lessons. So uh, I hadn't had any instruction since I was 12 years old. Now you, you mentioned to me, and I think it's worth noting here, uh, that, you know, skiing does lend itself somewhat to swimming because of the polling, uh, you know, you're using the same muscles. You are doing that almost that pulling technique that you need to do with swimming. And I think it's, it's worth mentioning that because Chris has become quite, quite the swimmer for the adult onset swimmer. Like many of us who wish we could swim like he does. Uh, Chris, what was your time at Lake Placid for the Ironman swim? Uh, I was 55 something. 
Okay. So we can all hate on Chris for just a second because we all wish we could do that. But uh, uh, again, I, I think it's important to note that coming off being an Olympian gives you something. And of course, being an Olympian who was a cross-country skier, you mentioned to me that that, that is a similar movement. It's not, I don't know if it's so much the same movement, but it's hard to find a, a, another endurance sport that requires your upper body to be so well-trained as cross-country skiing, just right. like swimming. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, all the capillaries were built, the strength was built, not necessarily in those, those movements, but uh, the VO2 max was in place. I just needed some yeah. efficiency. Just in terms of when I say the same movement, I guess what I'm referring to is, you know, you're pulling with the arm, similar to what you're doing in swimming. It's not in the same, you know, yeah, not, okay. not the same yeah. muscles, uh, but it, right. And it's also um, a full body coordination that is also very similar to skiing. I mean, you watch the best cross country skiers and they are, it looks so easy. And just like the best swimmers, you look at them and you're like, wow, it looks effortless until you try to do it. And then you realize how hard it is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, it's, it's definitely a huge kudos to you for being able to translate that. Uh, I mean, clearly being an Olympian obviously is going to translate to a lot of different sports, but, uh, you know, an endurance sport like triathlon is a big one. So, um, I'm curious how else you have found cross-country skiing, uh, to be complementary to triathlon. Well, I had a pretty huge training base. I mean, at my at my peak training, probably from 2007 through 2012, I was training about a thousand hours a year endurance. Um, so that builds that builds the kind of base that you want for um, for Ironman triathlons. Um, there now most most of that was um, was roller skiing and running, but there was some cycling in there. Um, I actually found that swimming, even with no technical guidance, was just really good for my overall flexibility. So there were several hours of thrashing around in a lake uh, every week in the, in the summer. Um, but basically, it just left me really, really fit and well and well trained. So I didn't have to build a huge base to start doing the Ironman. I, I needed to learn the technique. Um, on the on the bike strategy position things like that. And once the snow falls, do you shift your training back to cross country skiing? And because uh, you know a lot of triathletes will take an off season where they do other sports, and it seems to me that cross country skiing is is a perfect sport to complement triathlon training. Will you will you almost stop your triathlon training during the winter, or will you just use cross country skiing sort of as a complementary training? Cross country will be complementary. Um, uh, I, I get motivated by a race in the future. And if I don't have an important ski race in the future, I like skiing. I love skiing and I'll go out and enjoy it a few times a week. But if I, I've got the, you know, the Ironman world championships is now going to be in St. George on May 7th. Um, that's what I'm focused on. Um, so I will be skiing, but in preparation for that race. Got it. That makes sense. Now, Tell me how you manage your diabetes in such a long event. Uh, clearly for, you know, I've said on this program many times how nutrition is the fourth discipline and, and the triathlete who practices their nutrition well and who executes it well on race day has a leg up on the triathlete who doesn't. But you have a completely different 
you know, set of issues that you need to manage in dealing with your nutrition. Uh, so I'm curious how you have learned to manage your nutrition with your unique skill, you know, your unique issues of diabetes. Well, there are so there's, there's no um, one way to take care of your diabetes for every race. Every race distance is different. And so when I was a cross country skier, the longest Olympic event would, wouldn't take more than two hours and 15 minutes. And that was a 50 K um, two hours and 15 minutes would actually be fairly slow. The event I was best at was the 15 K and that was uh, somewhere between 35 and 40 minutes. And um, even between those two races would be a huge difference in the way I would uh, use my, uh, or, or prepare with, with insulin because the, 35 minute race, I can be um, almost anaerobic the entire time on every uphill. I can just go into gut busting as hard as I can um, and recover on the backside of the hill and do it again uh, for a 50 K for two hours. Uh, I, there's not, you can't really be truly anaerobic for a large percentage of that race. And when you're anaerobic um, lactate is a substrate of glucose and that will actually drive your overall glucose rate up. So you actually need more insulin when you're going anaerobic than when you're going aerobic. And then conversely, when you're going aerobic, you're burning sugar like crazy. So it's going down even faster. Um, so I use those same principles when I started looking at how I was gonna dose for a, you know, a nine hour Ironman event. And um, basically I, run on a very low amount of insulin, um, except on the bike where I do the majority of my feeding. And then I was uh, taking um, what I would call bolus insulin, where I would take a large amount of insulin uh, for a certain amount of carbo a carbohydrate. Now, are you using an insulin pump? I am. So you have an insulin pump and then uh, that's a device that you're wearing on your hip or where, where do you have that? So it's actually, you can see the outline of it right here. It's, okay, called, so, yeah. it's called an Omnipod. Okay. And it's the only uh, insulin device of its kind. Um, it actually has, this is the controller to it. So if you're listening on the, if you're listening on the podcast, he has it on his triceps and he's just showing me something that looks kind of like an iPhone. Yeah. So I've got, a, it's about an inch and a half by uh, an inch and a half. And it, it adheres to the skin, and then there's a cannula that goes into the subcutaneous fat. Okay. Before you stick it on there and have the and punch the cannula in, uh, you load it with insulin, and each pod lasts for three days. Um, afterwards, you dispose of it. Um, so the, it's referred to as a patch pump, um, which which um, is good for me for several reasons. Um, I started using it in ski racing because a traditional insulin pump has a long tube coming out of it to an infusion set. And that infusion set could have and probably would have frozen on me at some point when I was racing. And that would have been really bad because if you don't know what you're getting, you don't know how to react uh, to the sugars that you're seeing. So that was the number one reason why I started using it. Um, the other good thing about it is the pump itself is fully waterproof. The controller is not. So I leave that on the shore. Um, and also there's just no tubing to get all tangled up in. 
Right. Um, so you could swim with that pump. You set it before you start your swim. It's infusing insulin at a very low sort of rate while you're swimming. And then you pick up the controller when you get back to shore and it's with you on the bike. Yes. Right. I do preset. Um, so you, you reminded me of something for, uh, for the Ironman. I actually wear two separate insulin pumps. Okay. And I divide the amount of basal insulin, which is the amount that I'm getting every five minutes in microdoses uh, between the two of them. And what that allows me to do is if I am needing to make a quick adjustment, because the FDA does not make changing your dose quick and easy. They want it to be complicated. And so that you really think about it. And the last thing you want to do when you're in your arrow bars is click through a bunch of safety screens on your annoying uh, controller device. So if I need to lower my blood sugar in a quick, in a quick manner on the bike, I'll just tear a pot off. Oh, I see. Okay. All right. So it's like a redundancy. And uh, if your sugar's getting too high, you just, well, I can, I can all of a sudden just half my half insulin. Your insulin. Right. Okay. And, um, your feeding strategy, you, you plan that all out with, you know, the amount of insulin that you're planning to take. And so, you know, exactly how much sugar you're going to have, how many calories you're going to be taking in, obviously. Um, I actually, I don't, I don't know exactly because I have to react to what my insulin's doing. Got um, it. So unfortunately in that last Ironman, I was running high off of the swim. So I did, I did not get as many calories as I wanted to on the first 40 miles of that bike ride because I just had to wait for my blood sugar to settle before I could start feeding. And then I did catch up and eat as much as I wanted to, but it was a little bit delayed. Um, and the other thing that could happen is I could miscalculate the other way and end up having to take on more calories than I was planning to. So I've always got more calories with me than, I, than would be ideal, um, just in case. Okay. So the unspoken piece of this, and this is the part that I want to spend the rest of our discussion on, and that is how you know what your sugar is. Obviously you're using continuous glucose monitoring, and that is what I really want to get your insights on, because this is something that you've used obviously for a long time, much before it was available widely to non-diabetics. So tell us how you use continuous glucose monitoring to inform your racing and your, even your day-to-day -day life. Well, first, I'm just going to connect it back to the 2010 Olympics, where I had the really disappointing um, performance. Immediately upon doing that, I started using a continuous glucose monitor, um, the Dexcom one that I am now, but it's about five generations previous. And five generations ago, they were nothing like as good and accurate as they are now. Um, it was more of a guide, not something that I would actually ever dose insulin off of or anything like that. But the device as it stands now, I just look at my um, continuous glucose monitor and I make decisions uh, from that. Whereas before I would have actually done a blood test beforehand. So how does it work? Um, I am wearing, I, I don't know how many people are, can actually see the video, but that is, that is the um, transceiver. Yep in the sensor and that's going into the subcutaneous fat and that relays to my phone, which has an app on it. Um, and that app will display my blood sugar and get a reading every five minutes. And it displays it in graph form. I can also have that then relayed, um, to an Apple watch which is what I was using for the pre for the last, um, 
Ironman that I'd done, I had done. Uh, but recently, Garmin has actually come out with its own app um, that I much prefer. Uh, I don't know how many. I just hate using Apple Watches for for endurance activities because they're. I feel like they're designed to make you interact with it, not to actually do what you want it to do. Uh, whereas I, I find that the Garmin watch is much much better in for this purpose. Mm-hmm. So things continue to get better. And so now you'll be racing and the graph of your glucose will be charting along and you can make a decision as to when you need to take on more sugar or if you need to change your insulin dose. Yes. And I, and I did those for, for the Ironman that I have done in the past. I had the, uh, so I've been using it for the last 10 years. Okay. Um, I am, and I wore a watch. I had that, I'd had to have the phone with me. So I had that in the hip pack for the, for the entirety of the race minus the swim. Um, and the only drawback to the continuous glucose monitor is that it is measuring your sugar and your subcutaneous fat. So, and that is about 15 minutes behind what your actual blood sugar is. Right. Right. It's not, it's not the same. It takes time for the sugar to get from the bloodstream to where it's being measured. Something that's often not being advertised uh, in the uh, continuous glucose monitoring ads. So, um, as you know, as a diabetic, obviously this is life altering, uh, this technology, uh, for non-diabetics, do you see a usefulness for this? I mean, what, what, what exactly is a non-diabetic going to do with this information? I think it could satisfy. Um, well, I'm very interested personally to see the, di- the, the data of a non-diabetic person on a, a continuous glucose monitor. Um, because sometimes when you're trying, when you're trying to mirror something and you don't know exactly what it's supposed to be, <laughs> uh, it would just be very interesting to see how high, um, someone spikes and drops throughout what kind of variations they're seeing in an Ironman, what kind of variations they're seeing in their training. I think for the, the top, top elite athletes, um, it's another tool, um, to, to use, um, but I, you know, I read a, an article that diet, what is it? What does it call? It's the, what's the, what's the name of the super sapiens, super sapiens, um, a cross country skier that was using it. And he said, yeah, it's interesting, but I don't obsess over it. You know, I've, I've made a few changes to my diet and it, and my, my numbers look a little better now and my energy is a little higher, but it's not, it doesn't seem to me that it's going to be the, uh, the savior of all things in, in endurance sports, just another set of data. And at this point it's very expensive. Right. And data that a non-diabetic can't really affect a whole lot of change on because their pancreas is going to deal with whatever that glucose is. They're, yes. Um, I mean, but you, but a, a non-diabetic can control when they eat, what types of foods they eat. Um, and I think those were the things that this particular skier um, became aware of. That on, sure. his, that on his biggest training days, it really was better to eat three, uh, eat five small meals than three huge ones. That is, sure. glucose profile was better. In the long run, does that make a difference in performance? Who knows? Right. Um, you know, and, I, and I've gotten the question is like, are, are you offended that this technology is being used by endurance athletes possibly? And it's, 
No, it'll probably drive drive the price down. So I'm psyched. <laughs> <laughs> That's a that is a uh, a good way of seeing it from your perspective. I can see how that would uh, definitely uh, be a, be a way to see it from from your viewpoint. Well, um, I, I think it's it's really interesting because it is clearly a technology that is revolutionizing the lives of diabetics, especially people like you who are such high performing athletes. And, uh, you know, I, I've commented on it in the past saying how it's, it's almost like it's a, it's a technology looking for a new market as opposed to a market that really needs that technology. Um, but for people like you, there's no doubt that it's, it's hugely impactful. And I'm really, really glad that it's out there and it's, it's obviously, uh, proving so beneficial. Um, what else do you have uh, in your future? You've got the world championships in St. George. Is uh, there anything else on your horizon at this point? Um, beyond St. George, I'm probably going to go to um, the triathlon nationals next year in New York and do the, uh, the half Ironman next September. That would be the next focal race. Um, and do you have hopes to, uh, to get to Kona? What? Do you have hopes to get to Kona as well? Uh, you know, St. George's is going to kind of be my Kona. Um, I've traveled, I've been to Hawaii. I've traveled all over. Um, it would be cool to, if this was Kona, but I'm, I'm at the same time. I just want to, I just want to race and I want to race against the best and see how it stacks up. Um, and you know, I'll get a tan in Utah, I'll get a tan in Kona. So. It's going to be, it's going to be a, a beautiful course and it's going to be a real challenging one. So, uh, I, I don't think you're being shortchanged at all. I mean, I honestly, I mean, honestly, I think the Utah course suits me better. <laughs> in a lot of ways, in a lot of ways it is, uh, Kona is Kona, right? That's been the argument that's been happening online since the announcement was made that, uh, that Kona is the history uh, Kona definitely has some environmental conditions to deal with that you won't get in Utah, but uh, the Utah course is definitely a much more challenging course, especially on the bike. Um, so yeah, well, anyways, we'll see. I'll be very interested to hear yours and other people's uh, uh impressions after the the race is all said and done uh well chris freeman uh four-time cross-country ski olympian uh many time national champion and age group winner in his uh, age group at ironman lake Placid. was that your first ironman um i've done ironman lake Placid twice now okay so second time out age group winner and now heading for his first ever ironman world championship uh chris i really appreciate your insights and uh it was a really interesting conversation thank you so much for being with me today on the tridog podcast thank you and that's it for another episode the tridog podcast is produced and edited by me jeff sankoff along with my indomitable intern maddie pesh you can find the show notes for everything discussed on the show today, as well as archives of previous episodes at tridocpodcast.com. Do you have questions or comments about any of the issues discussed on this episode, or do you have a question that you'd like us to consider answering on a future episode? Well, send me an email at tri underscore doc at icloud.com. If you're interested in coaching services, please visit try.coaching.com or lifesportcoaching.com, where you can find a lot of information about me and the services that I provide. And next Friday, Black Friday, there'll be a special episode of this podcast coming out, which will be very brief and will reveal a special Black Friday code that you can use to get one month of free coaching. So pay attention to that coming out next week. You can also follow me on the TriDoc Podcast Facebook page, 
Tridoc Coaching on Instagram, and the Tridoc Coaching YouTube channel. If you enjoy this podcast, I hope that you'll consider leaving me a review, a rating and a review, as well as subscribe to the show wherever you download it. And of course, there's always the option of becoming a supporter of the podcast and gaining access to lots of bonus content, and that can be found at patreon.com forward slash Podcast. The music heard at the beginning and the end of the show is Radio by Empty Hours and is used with permission. This song and many others like it can be found at ReverbNation.com, where I hope that you'll visit and give small, independent bands a chance. The TriDoc Podcast will be back again soon with another medical question for me to answer and another interview with someone in the world of multisport. Until then, remember 1121 and train hard, train healthy. <laughs>